You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I'm your host, Christina Previtt, and joining me today for a special edition of the Hashtag FemSquire series is Afshan Ajamiri Hiner, a partner at Florio Perucci and a member of the firm's education practice group. She focuses her practice in education, school law, labor and employment, and representation of local governments and public entities. Welcome, Afshan. Hi, how are you, I'm good. I'm so excited to interview you today because as you know, with the weather and everything, it's been hard to get this on the calendar. So I'm glad we're finally doing it. Likewise, likewise. Guys, I think we started talking about this almost two months ago at this point. So I'm really excited. Yes, me too. So I always start out with the same question for everyone. Where did you go to college and what did you think you wanted to be when you grow up? I'll start with where I went to college because that's easier. <laughs> so I went to Brown University, which is located in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, that's where I got my undergraduate degree in international relations. What I wanted to be when I grew up changed <laughs> a lot. Uh, so when I was younger, I wanted to be an astronaut. And then I realized by the time I got to high school that physics and, and the hard sciences were not my thing. Uh, but then I kind of was felt driven towards uh, medicine because my grandmother, who is now deceased, really pushed me to be uh, to consider medicine because, you know, one of her one of my aunts, her daughter is, is a doctor and she thinks it's really important for women to be doctors and professionals and educated. And every, every, everybody in the family really emphasizes that. But in general, she really pushed me for it towards it. So when I first started college, I actually was pre-med and then halfway through college, I was like, this is, this is not what brings me joy in life at all. And while I understand you have to have a job, you also have to love what you do, you know? Yeah. So, um, I had taken a class that had to do with international law that got, kind of got me interested in law. And then eventually I decided I wanted to be in sort of this legal space. And shortly after college, uh, actually right after graduation, I worked in a um, high school as a counselor for a couple of years. And that's when I realized that I wanted to specifically focus on education, uh, education, law and policy. So I have to back up a little bit. Why did you want to be an astronaut? What was it about that that drew you to it? Uh, very silly, I'll tell you, because I just thought it was really cool to to look at, you know, this is where I was very young, right? So I, I used to like looking at the open sky and my dad had telescopes because he was really into astronomy. And, and um, so we used to go up um, at night and use his telescopes to look at different planets and stuff. And, and, and I thought by the time, you know, I would be old enough, we would probably have flying cars and it would take maybe two days to go to, <laughs> go to the moon. And, and, you know, so I, I really thought it was fascinating, the concept of how, you know, the, the earth uh, is in connection to the rest of the planets. And there's so much that's unknown. It's just thought of the unknown and being able to explore. Uh, so yeah. 
was. <laughs> I like that too. It sort of reminds me of Tesla. I mean, Elon Musk wants to, you know, he wants to send people to Mars and he's got all yeah. these really incredible goals. You know, if I qualify, I would definitely volunteer to go because <laughs> it's just the thought of exploring the unknown is, is really fascinating to me. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. I mean, how many people have really gone to space? Not that many. Not that many. And there are not a lot of uh, females either who you know are astronauts, let alone going to space. There are some there are some great female astronauts out there. But, you know, it, I thought it would be really cool. <laughs> it, yeah, I agree. It would be cool. And I agree. You know, I, I don't consider myself to have the strongest science background. I know some people say that there's like a science brain and a, an English verbal brain. But and some people argue that that's not true. But I don't know. I, I'm not really a science and math person either. I'm not either. And uh, it's it's interesting because that who my, you know, my dad and my brother and even my mom to a certain degree are very science math heavy. So I don't know where, <laughs> what happened with me. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you, uh, did you come from a family of doctors or scientists? So my, one of my aunts, she's a doctor, but my dad, um, you know, he majored in physics. My mom um, studied uh, economics uh, didn't finish college, but she, you know, that's what she was going towards. And then my brother majored in physics and applied math or, or something along those lines. And I was just like, who does applied math for fun? But apparently my brother and, you know, he's he does software engineering work. My dad's in, you know, computer engineering. And but the rest of the family actually, believe it or not, are all educators in, in different capacities. So most of them are in education and in that space. Um, some are in education related to sciences. Others are just in uh, education, you know, across the board in, in different areas. Because I love that your grandmother encouraged you to be a doctor. What did your grandmother do? So she passed, she was a housewife. So when she was very young, her dad passed away. And so she never really got to finish school and they couldn't necessarily afford to go to college. And then even though she got married, I think she was like 23, 24, which, you know, in, uh, for us, it's very young, but for, you know, Bangladesh and India, it's like not that young. She, you know, um, she was, she loved books. She read probably every book I could think of in the, uh, she used to finish all the books in a, in a single section of a library within a month. So she, you know, she loved to read. She was always very interested in education and um, that particular generation, my grandparents' generation from both sides of the family and their siblings, they're all, you know, very educated um, or because it, for them, education was the one way sort of to improve you know, your life circumstances. And, um, and I, the education was very much based in, you know, heavily in, uh, not just in the sciences, but, you know, most people were, it was in, in literature and, and um, the arts and, and English, etc. Yeah, I, I always find it interesting, too, when people, well, I think I'm a little older than you, but I'm going to say generally of our generation, when the grandmoms were the ones encouraging girls to do big things because they didn't always have those same opportunities. They weren't encouraged to do those big things. And I, I think they really see those opportunities and value them so much more probably than maybe even our generation does because it's just what we've grown up with. But 
I think sometimes we do take for granted the opportunities that we have now that our grandparents didn't, particularly grandmothers, didn't really have as much of. No, that's definitely true. Um, I, I do think that, you know, when so for instance, when I graduated from college and took a couple of years off just to, you know, figure out, not so much figure out what I wanted to do next. I just wanted to take some time to just, just, you know, get a feel for quote unquote, the real world and, and, and figure out which direction I wanted to go, which helped by the way, cause it, it steered me towards education law, but my grandmother was getting very nervous and, and she was, uh, you know, she was always concerned that I would never go and finish school then get a higher degree. Um, so yeah, it is kind of fascinating because to that to me indicates that, you know, I was just taking my uh, my privilege of, of, you know, being here and here as in the United States and being in having the options and the choices. So much more for granted, you know, and I'm sure yeah. she would love to have the same opportunities and, and options. Yeah. I guess it's a luxury that we can take some of those things for granted now. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so you're in college, you're realizing this pre-med thing is, is not going to work out for me. Did your parents and your family really just want you to excel or were they really pressuring you to do the pre-med? I think, um, in, you know, in South Asian culture, there tends to be this uh, notion of uh, being a, you know, a doctor or, or, or in, in scientist or an engineer or something along those lines that uh, they correlate that with, you know, success and, 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 and sometimes even, you know, intelligence. Fortunately, my family, while they definitely pushed me very hard towards hard towards medicine, um, a lot of it had to do with you know how uh, the earning capacity, right? When you and and you leave a you lead a comfortable life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, when you're a doctor, um, and also you know it's 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 important to be you know a educated professional woman. Those were the two pieces of it. But when they realized that you know my goals were different and I would that I was just really like internally struggling with the thought of really pursuing medicine and that I had found this different area this other area that I really really liked um it, you know they were far more understanding and supportive so tell me more about the counseling that you did that had you more interested in education the program itself is called National College Advising Corps, and essentially what you do is you serve as a, a college guide or a college counselor. We like to say college guide because it does uh, differentiate kind of what our role is than a typical counselor in school communities all over the country. We primarily focus on a lot of the low-income uh, rural and urban communities uh, where you typically don't see a you know, majority of the students, you know, e even attempting college, and if they do, uh, are attempting higher education, and if they do, there is no real support system for them to be able to su be successful and, and, and complete uh, their, you know, four-year degree, or even a two-year degree followed by any kind of you know, additional degree. So the purpose of the program was to increase the participation of uh, of students coming from those communities in higher education because there is definitely there are definitely studies and there's a correlation between higher ed and uh, and income and and long-term you know upward mobility i had the 
privilege of going back to my old high school, which was great. And so when I went back, um, I basically developed in conjunction with the school's leadership, you know, the, the guidance counselors that are already there and doing, you know, what they do on a regular basis to create uh, essentially what I like to say, a college going culture. And while I understand that going to college isn't everybody's goal and, and may not be for everyone, but it should still be available to those who want to. As a result, I got very close to the families and the children and the students. And what I came to realize is all these programs, they're great. Um, and I definitely support all these programs, but there's a systematic issue. And then there are underlying issues that impact uh, education in our country. And one of them is whether we'd like to recognize it or not, it's, it's, it's generational, you know, uh, segregation, uh, you know, what started off as racial segregation has, has definitely impacted how communities were able to expand and grow. And now there's also economic and socioeconomic segregation, uh, because certain school communities um, have, you know, higher levels of income and higher levels of um, resources as a result, and the other school communities don't. So that got me very interested in urban education, urban education reform, as well as just education law and policy. Um, so as I started to look into the different ways I could contribute in a way where we're fixing the system, quote unquote, a uh, couple of areas were of interest to me. One was education policy. So I started, I got, uh, I got involved with the, the governor, uh, well, the governor of Rhode Island, urban education reform task force. And then when I started applying to law schools, I really looked at schools that had a public interest component to it. So when I first went to law school, I was, I went in with this idea of, you know, going into education policy. Um, and then um, as I got through law school, I, I kind of realized that there's this other piece to it where you can deal with the legal issues that come in. And part of the legal issues also impact policymaking. That's kind of how I got interested. I know this is a long-winded explanation of, of where I was. <laughs> That's okay. That was a lot of information, but I am so impressed with the philanthropic work, really, that you were doing at such an early phase in your career and as a young person there's so many i feel like i need to just stop what i'm doing right now and go go volunteer somewhere because you've i feel like you've done far more than i have and i'm older and um i'm really impressed with your background i think that's so wonderful that you're doing all those great things for people and for the public but i have to ask you it to me it begs the question why law school because there could have been so many other things that you could have gone into. You could have gone into public administration or urban planning um, or social work or any number of other things. Why was law the thing that you decided was for you? The law degree is so versatile because I actually, a lot of folks that I came across during my time uh, doing that work, a lot of them had law degrees. So whether they were uh, people in the state legislature, whether they were uh, deans at the colleges, whether they were running uh, nonprofit organizations, a lot of them had a legal background. And what I noticed, and that was uh, something that they all also said, is that having that legal background, you can really utilize that in a way um, the, 
what you know what you at least the education in a way where you can i guess get get a little bit more respect in the community if that's that's one way to put it but also the legal uh the, the way we are taught to think in law school the way we're taught to issue spot and come up with solutions and come up with creative solutions that's what our communities need and i was like well if this is going to arm me to become better at, at what i do and to be frank with you had i not gone to law school i probably would have stayed in Rhode Island and probably would have been in some, one of those nonprofit agencies and maybe, you know, gone to, you know, a local law school night at nights or something. And still, you know, that, that law degree I thought was very, not so much necessary, but very valuable in being able to contribute to society. Uh, and it sounds crazy probably because most lawyers are like, what are you talking about? You know, because, but I, I really, you know, everybody I spoke to that had a lot, even if they weren't practicing or they gave up practicing, they all felt that that education, that experience really helped them uh, bring their organization or bring their skills to, you know, resolve issues or or, or publicly speak or, or whatever it may to organize. Everybody felt that it, it that I met that had a JD or was an Esquire felt that that was really key in their in their success and in their ability to do their work. Yeah, I, I don't think that sounds crazy at all. I mean, there's there's a lot of stereotypes about lawyers, and you had mentioned earlier that people kind of see doctors as always being successful, right? But I know there are plenty of doctors that don't make a ton of money. And there are plenty of lawyers that don't make a ton of money, like people think. And sadly, like social workers who notoriously don't make a lot of money, there are plenty of lawyers that are doing really good work for the public that aren't doing it because of the satisfaction they get and the contribution that they're making to the community and not for money because they're really not making a lot of money. So um, it doesn't sound crazy at all what you just said. And of all the attorneys, I think per capita, we have the most attorneys in New Jersey, but they're not all litigators. They're not all at some law firm doing litigation or, or um, corporate work. A lot of them actually, because we have so many pharmaceuticals here in New Jersey, they, they are doing patent work or, or they're doing public interest work. So that actually doesn't sound dumb at all. But then I have to ask you, what, did you have a dream job? What did you have your eye on something in particular when you were going into law school? And how did you end up doing what you do now? Yeah, so I think when I first went into law school, I thought I wanted to, you know, be in Washington, D.C. I think a lot of people, you know, that that have interest in public policy and, and law or, or, you know, politics in general think they want to be in Washington, D.C. <laughs> um, but over time, um, I think uh, my perspective changed a lot. And you bring up a good point about uh, making money and being successful as a lawyer. It really depends on, uh, well, actually, I'm, and let me uh, separate success because success doesn't always equate money. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of people think lawyers make a lot of money, which is a concerning misconception because there are a lot of us necessarily don't so yeah. I knew one thing for sure that I would didn't want to go into one of those big law firms and be you know one like one of those uh you know fancy associates um who while they do a lot of cool things it just wasn't my style at all 
the other thing I knew, and I, I, and I talked to this with one of my other partners a lot, we always talk about, well, if we wanted to make money, we wouldn't be doing education law. Yeah. Um, represent public entities, we represent, you know, um, also just uh, municipalities, counties, etc. And, you know, the, the billing rates there are, you know, abysmal compared to or at least the average lawyer would say that, right. But we don't do this because of the money, right. And so it's okay. And I still think that we are successful in our own regard because just because we don't, you know, make the hundred thousands of dollars a year, <laughs> we're not, we're not privileged. We are still, you know, at a, at a much better place than a lot of other people are. So we, you know, so uh, that being said, I do, th- and I don't know where the transition was, but at some point I was like, I don't know if I necessarily want to go into federal government policymaking. I don't, I don't, I don't see myself there yet. That's that's when I kind of switch gears to okay, let me see what kind of jobs I can you know find um, at a law firm um, or doing you know really learning to practice and be a lawyer. Uh, you know I did leave private practice for a little while and went to uh, the Department of Education. That was kind of you know because I kind of had a. a interest in going into government, going to the policy piece of it. So um, when I went to the Department of Ed, it was, you know, it was a great experience because I worked directly with uh, the school law component, which was dealing with all the legal issues that are brought before the commissioner. But I also got to be part of the rulemaking process. That gave me a nice taste of, of, uh, you know, what government work is. And um, what I realized is that I needed to come back to government work, whether federal or otherwise, at a later time in life, I just felt that I, I had uh, a little bit more uh, to do as an attorney and as a, as a professional and for my own professional goal, growth, I you know came back to private practice. Maybe politics? Uh, <laughs> you mean like as a public as, office? As a official myself? Yes. she's laughing if you're ever in public office I'm gonna send you this video so you can see your reaction yeah so the reason I have that reaction is it's funny so I people say I take after my grandfather who was a diplomat and 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 everybody he knew everybody he was very charming I'm not even half as charming as he is for lack of a better word the like the social butterfly you know and so people say that uh because you know no matter what environment you put me in I'll I'll figure it out I'll navigate my way through that environment I mean I'm not going to say yes or no I don't really know because again life changes but I always feel like I'm probably better behind the scenes. I'm more of a behind the scenes type of person. I do think that folks who run for public office, folks who are public officials need very strong people behind the scene to help them with their day to day, to help them make the right decisions, to help them navigate through uh, their tenure or term within that office and, and whatever they're planning. If I was like the face or the front person, I don't think you know, I would need good people behind me. And I rather like I be behind someone than me be the front person, if that makes sense. <laughs> yes. No, I get that. And you're absolutely right. They absolutely do need a team of really good people behind them doing work behind the scenes as with most things in life. Right. <laughs> um, but it's good to know which one you are. 
<laughs> yeah. It's good to know whether you want to be the person in the front, sort of the showman, so to speak, or one of the people behind the scenes. So where did you go to law school? I'm not sure that we got to that part yet. So I went to Rutgers, Newark, uh, it, which is also known as the People's Electric Law School. Uh, and, you know, I think I mentioned that, you know, I needed a law school that was very much geared and focused on public interest and 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 um, and Rutgers is one of the schools that is pretty well known for their public interest work and their groundbreaking and dare I say some of the time sometimes very radical you know work that they have done at this point I don't think I've ever mentioned it to people who don't know me personally when I was applying to law school my personal statement was very controversial at that time now it's like not that what was it i'm gonna i'm gonna get to that and i think and i think this is why i have a lot of respect for Rutgers too i apply for law schools at a time where uh there was there were no protections for undocumented youth and undocumented individuals in in this country one of the things i came across uh, during my time between law school and college there were lots of students who were undocumented um, not just within my community, but in communities across uh, my state. And it was very challenging to have to navigate through the college process with them because you don't apply, you don't qualify for financial aid. Some schools will actually turn a blind eye and they'll give you internal aid, which, you know, that's awesome and, and progressive on their part. Um, and other schools, you know, you need the financial aid information, you need, you know, certain kinds of documentation. Uh, but, you know, what I realized is that here you have students who came here maybe as young as six months, as two years old, whatever, 10 years old, it doesn't matter. The point is they came here and, uh, you know, obviously people who come here aren't here just because they want to take advantage of the United States. It's because they're running away from something and uh, something horrific <laughs> most of the time. Rarely did I come across people, if at all, that were, you know, coming here and overstaying their visa and, and you know, the have all this money back home or whatever it may be that's not the case in my experience so i really want one of my pieces about education at that time was also educational protection for students who were undocumented and children who were undocumented beyond you know the k through 12 level and so that's one of the things that i was really interested in and I, and I wrote my personal statement was about undocumented youth and their right to education or what should be their right to obtaining higher education without the risk of of being deported to a country that they don't know or at risk of being you know discovered and having similar opportunities as other students uh, or other children who were you know had the privilege of being born here right i'm a naturalized citizen so i think maybe there's a piece there where also it's like oh well i'm an immigrant so i understand what that yeah. feels like right and here they, you have a particular immigrant population that's far more vulnerable and so i do think that schools that accepted me despite that i kudos to them and when I first got to Rutgers, one of the deans actually pointed out to me because she was on the application review committee or something. She pointed out the fact that she thought my personal statement was very much in line with the kind of, you know, school Rutgers want, wants to be. So I, I felt that I felt really good about that. Uh, but yeah, so but basically what I'm saying is like, despite knowing how radical at that time that position was or, or how progressive at that position that position was, and I don't even think it's that progressive of a position, 
but you know, uh, well, I think by today's standards, because things have changed, there's yeah. a, a lot of people that agree with that. So maybe at the time it was more controversial, than it is. although maybe I'm just gauging it by the world that I'm in because the world I'm in, you know, the people that I surround myself with support it. So I know that there is still a lot of controversy around it to some degree. There are, you know, I mean, we're living in a world now where immigration reform is a big issue. But when you wrote it, how did you know that it was controversial within the school? So everybody, everybody told me, don't write about that. Really? Yes. But for me, because, you know, I'm, I'm headstrong. <laughs> I was like, no, well, if, if, if I can be in a school community where uh, I am not accepted for having certain beliefs, <laughs> you know, I mean, I've, I've, you know, of course, that's just who, you know, how I kind of approached it. And I was like, this will weed out, you know, schools that really want to engage in real discourse of issues that, that fate, you know, that are relevant to our country and that issues that are, in my opinion, relate to, you know, human rights. And so for me, it was like, if, if schools didn't reject me for that, I don't think schools, I'm sure there are schools that look, you know, schools that are supposed to look at the whole packet. And when I say school, yeah. uh, law schools. So if they're looking at the whole packet and that's the reason they reject me, not my, you know, grades or my, you know, uh, LSATs or whatever, then, you know, I don't need to be there. And somebody from the school that I specifically mentioned my personal statement led me to believe that, wow, this school really has a commitment and it's not just, you know, calling itself a, a public interest school or a progressive school or, or a people's electric law school. It's actually uh, is willing to uh, have people who uh, come from both sides of the fence. Because let me tell you, Rutgers wasn't, you know, just because it's a people electric school doesn't mean there weren't people from very polar opposite sides of the fence, you know, but there were. So it was kind of nice to, to know, it was gratifying to know that I was part of an educational system where at the time this topic was very controversial in, the, in this country uh, where, you know, we, it was okay to, to have a certain view that was very controversial and at that point didn't feel very popular. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm probably forgetting how unpopular it was because I'm kind of gauging it against how we are now, but that's really bold of you at that point in your career, very early in your legal career to do that. And it's interesting because people always tell you when you go on a job interview, it's not just you trying to make a good impression on who's interviewing you, but you're also there to determine whether it's a good fit for you too. And it's interesting that you really saw it that way when you were applying to law schools, not just that you wanted to make yourself look good. Like I want them to want me, but you wanted to make sure you want them too. Yeah. And I don't know if that's necessarily the right way to approach life, but that's how I <laughs> approach life. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I think maybe it is. Because because I'll give you another example. So like, you know, I have a nose ring, which is cultural. And I understand that um, it in some circles, it may be, not be considered uh, professional. But, and so when I've had people comment on me having a piercing on my nose, which is purely, you know, a, a cultural aspect of my identity. I've already been like, okay, duly noted, you know, because uh, I can, you know, if you have a problem with that, then, then maybe, maybe we will not mesh, <laughs> uh, you know, if you're expecting me to take my nose ring off, <laughs> you know, yeah. and 
And, you know, this is why I'm in a space, I'm in, I'm in a firm and I'm in a space where no matter who you are, you get to be yourself as long as you are representing yourself and your clients and the firm in a manner that that is consistent with um, our model, which is, you know, uh, partners in our client success. And it, it's silly things like a nose ring is it doesn't impact them or, or, or which side of the fence you're from doesn't matter. And this is why I, I find environments like that. And I thrive in environments like that. That's surprising to me that people still say things like that, although it shouldn't be surprising, but still (laughs) surprises me when I hear things like that. So, but sounds like you were very bold and quite the trailblazer from a pretty young age. Where do you think you got that from? Um, I would say the strong women in my family. Uh, we have some very generationally, uh, all the women are, are very strong. Even if some of them don't have formal education, they may not be, even if some of them were, uh, you know, so I hate when people say that, oh, just a housewife or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, those, whether, whether they had careers or not, the, the women in uh, my family are, are very bold and unapologetic about who they are. And that was, you know, great um, for me to sort of model and mirror. I also think that my culture, you know, even though I'm South Asian, uh, I'm, I'm Bengali. And I do think in, in Bengali culture, there's also this at least in my experience among my family and family friends, there's always this notion to be never be, uh, you know, harmful towards other, but but do what's right and 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 don't be afraid of being yourself. And so, being myself is is being, you know, as you say, I think you said bold, or I, I don't even think I was I'm that bold compared to you know other women that I know uh, that have you know been trailblazers. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, if, if that's what it means, uh, then that's what it is. <laughs> well, that's what bold women always say, that they don't think they're being bold because they're not trying to be bold. They're not sitting there saying, well, how can I be bold today? They're just, they're just being themselves. But, yeah. but I think that's really the beautiful part of it. They're being themselves. They're not holding back because they're afraid of what society is going to say about them. Right. Like you could easily have said, well, everybody thinks that I shouldn't write this on this topic and I guess I shouldn't write it because if everybody else thinks that it's inflammatory, then I don't want to invite that. But being the bold person you are, you said, no, this is what I'm passionate about and this is what I'm going to write about. And to me, that's the difference. That's where the boldness is and where the authenticity is. Thank you. So pat yourself on the back. I'm patting you on the back. Virtual pat. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. And so, okay. So you're in law school. You've definitely decided education is something you're passionate about and you want to work in that area in some capacity. And Rutgers, it sounds like was a really wonderful uh, breeding ground for you to um, explore some of those things. So I would, I wouldn't mind going back to those years again and law school too, taking advantage of those opportunities to learn because you have those resources around you where there's professors and and seasoned professionals that want to teach young people how to be lawyers and how to advocate. 
because that's something you don't necessarily know how to do right out of law school, right, is how to be a lawyer and how to represent people. So what did you do right out of law school? So my first year, I clerked for a judge in Jersey City in, in Hudson County, Hudson Vicinage. That was a very interesting year because that was the year that my judge ended up in a chancery rotation and she was still doing special civil matters you know that all the judges end up having to do so it was a really crazy year but that year my judge took the time to really mentor me and and when she needed to she was very hard on me to make sure that I uh, really took advantage of that clerkship and, and learned a lot in that clerkship because that clerkship really set the tone for how I, my, my, my work uh, uh, products, my work ethic and, and, and how I approach the law, how I analyze things. Cause you know, yeah, law school teaches you like the basic skills, but you really learn in the practice of law. Right. So after the clerkship ended, I went to a boutique school law firm and, you know, one of the things that I really appreciated going uh, while at the firm, because it was very high paced. It was the expectations were very high, very, very, very accomplished and, and intelligent and hardworking, you know, attorneys that work there. So, you know, I had a challenge. I was like, oh my God, now I gotta, you know, now I've got to be just as awesome as these people are. Can you help me with what kind of work were you doing as a school lawyer? Because I don't do that area. And I don't think there really are many attorneys that do that line of work. So I'm a little unclear exactly in what kind of work it is. So can you explain that? Absolutely. And you know what, until you have like lived a day in our shoes, even if we explain it to you, <laughs> You're going to be like, oh, okay. Uh, and, and the reason I say it is because I really want people to just see how, because I, I love this work. So I really want people to see how like fascinating, crazy and unpredictable <laughs> our day to day can be. So as a general matter, so we represent primarily uh, public school districts. And as a general matter, most of these public schools are, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of budget, right? Annual budget. So think of the school district essentially as a company or a corporation. The board of education is basically their board of directors. The superintendent of schools is the is the chief, you know, CEO basically. So and then you have the CEO's cabinet, which are the, the assistant superintendents, the HR and whoever else they have. You know, every school has it differently set up. So we are counsel to this entire entity some you know we have school districts that their operating budgets uh, range from uh, you know from those school districts we represent they range anywhere from you know a uh, hundred million dollars to like 700 million dollars you know so that this is this is what we are these are the people we're dealing with and the reason I mentioned the numbers and the money is because I think people look at schools um, and don't understand what happens behind the scenes and you know they go and vote for you know uh, the Board of Education elections, not realizing how important it is who they vote for and the impact that has on their child's education and on the policies that are implemented and how the monies are spent, you know. Um, so that being said, on a day-to-day -day basis, we serve as general counsel to a lot of our districts, not all districts, because some districts have their own law firms or in-house counsel that serve as general counsel. So what does it mean as general counsel? We deal with a lot of issues that come up as a result of board governance because 
schools and education are one of the most regulated areas of government. <laughs> and so, you know, school board members also have certain rules and regulations and, and uh, laws that they are uh, bound to. Um, so we deal with a lot of uh, board governance issues that come up. Um, a lot of times, day-to-day uh, -day operations of schools entail consideration of legal issues. Uh, consideration of what the statutes and regulations require. So a lot of our work entails, you know, uh, um, advising on and ensuring compliance with the laws and regulations. And then, of course, there's the other piece of it, which is being a labor and employment attorney. So because you're dealing when you're dealing with a large uh, entity like a school district in some in some communities, they're the largest employer in that entire community. So here you have all these uh, employees that have, you know, employment related matters, uh, labor negotiations, you know, we do labor negotiations when every, uh, you know, every year we'll have anywhere between five to six different entities that we're, uh, or, you know, labor and unions that we're negotiating with. Um, and then of course, the day to day, you know, the typical labor uh, employment stuff that comes up. Then there's the third piece of it, which is the clients, what I call the clients for the school district, which are the parents and the students in the community. And with regard to that, there are all these laws are around, you know, student entitlement, student discipline, you know, HIV, residency. There's so many components that go into dealing with families, you know, whether it be uh, special education related, whether it be discipline related, whatever it may be, or just in general student rights and responsibilities. It, we deal with those pieces as well when issues come up relating to that. And then last but not least, any kind of litigation that arises, whether it's employment, whether it's district suing district, whether it's, you know, student, um, you know, a lot of times it's special ed related. So we wear a lot of hats. The workday is never the same. It's never predictable. Um, so I will legitimately have, um, you know, on, uh, on one given day, it will be uh, call after call after call or meeting, you know, now a lot of things are Zoom, which is nice. So I don't have to be jutting around the state all day. And then at night, I'm working on the substantive pieces of being a lawyer, whether it's writing briefs, whether it's reading documents and then, you know, editing things. And, and, and of course, we have a team of associates because there is always so much to be done, so much to be looked at. And even when you've been in this space for, you know, for some of, some of the attorneys in our office, they've been in this space for decades and others, you know, only a decade or, or a few years, you're constantly learning. There are constantly nuances. Uh, the issues never change. COVID completely, you know, uh, brought in a whole new other host of issues because the two things that don't shut down during any kind of, or even if it shuts down, it, what I mean, it's like the responsibility are never shifted uh, in any kind of emergency or, 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 you know, anything that's going on, especially, you know, a pandemic, for instance, are local governments, which we represent, and, and school districts, right, which we also represent. So COVID brought on a whole other slew of challenges. So this year was also a learning year and trying to figure out what we're supposed to be doing and how we're supposed to be, uh, you know, assisting in our, our clients and helping our clients make those decisions. So yeah, a typical day is really interesting for us. Um, this is, and in addition, I should mention a lot of our nights are also taken, uh, booked by like going to board meetings, council meetings. Um, so our, our lifestyle is very different from the 
average you know attorney that you may see on a day-to-day basis it sounds like a little bit like corporate counsel yes um it is it, it sounds yeah it is it is more or less corporate counsel but what i've learned from meeting all these in-house people <laughs> is they farm everything out so we are basically the ones keeping you know doing all the work uh, the firms are you know some school districts have in-house counsel that mm-hmm. a lot of the day-to-day but then when there is litigation going on, it gets uh, farmed out to us. And yes, I mean, corporate counsel is the best way to put it. But with schools, and even with municipalities, all you need is one little thing to happen in one of your school districts, and it completely derails, you know, the entire day, it could be something as as uh, and uh, innocuous is the wrong word, but it could be something as simple as like a flooding, you know, in, in one district or something as horrific as, as a, you know, a bomb threat or whatever it may be, it still requires, because behind the scene, they're consulting us as well, us as in their attorneys and making sure they're doing what they need to do. And, and while the school administrators are, are very well trained and equipped and have all the experience to handle the situation on the ground, they also need to make sure that in terms of compliance and next steps, they're consulting us um, on on how to handle issues. It sounds like you are wearing so many hats. I mean, if I at my law firm, I do one thing. I do divorce law. Are you personally wearing all those hats or do you have certain aspects of it that you handle? For instance, like the labor and employment. So um, at the firm, we have folks, we have made sure that folks who specialize in certain areas. So while I have an overview understanding of of the public contracts law and procurement and bidding, um, there are folks in our firm who specialize in it and who are basically going to be my go-to if I have uh, a question that is beyond the basics, beyond, you know, what I know uh, of procurement and, 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 or maybe a public bidding question that's very nuanced or interesting that's, you know, outside of the scope of what I know. Uh, A lot of times we have very complicated health benefits or, or, you know, some of the leaves like FMLA or NJ, uh, FLA type of leave questions. While I know the basics of it, there may be a very uh, nuanced question that I would ask somebody else from the firm. So that's the great thing about having full service firm, but also a full service firm within which there's a dedicated education practice group where different people with uh, varied experiences. On an average day, I'm wearing all sorts of hats, sometimes all at the same time. You know, uh, my clients are calling me about special ed issues. My clients are calling me about, you know, uh, employment issues. Clients are calling about general, uh, you know, school law issues. Uh, And the reason I'm able to do that and and jump from topic to topic uh, or even some obscure board governance you know, question, I'll be like, I think that's what it is. Let's just double check or, you know, and this is what I, what makes logically the most sense. I was able to do that because of my past experiences, right? I I was at this boutique school law firm that are just excellent at what they do. And they've been doing this for too long (laughs) or very long, I shouldn't say too long. And then, uh, and then of course, being at the department and really getting the inside and the, you know, really understanding um, the nitty gritty of pieces of the law. So, you know, in that sense, it's very unique because I do come across attorneys that have 
far more years of practical experience than I do, but may not have the same knowledge. And it kind of, you know, they, and I don't mean attorneys from within the firm, like, you know, people that I come across outside who then feel some type of way about, (laughs) here's this girl who's like, who's like child, like in their eyes. And, you know, I'm just like, listen, no, no, no. I know what I'm talking about. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think we've all experienced that. But then once you demonstrate that you, um, you're a grown up and you're, intelligent and and capable, I think that opinion changes quickly. Um, So I want to ask you when if litigation comes up, because it sounds like you do some litigation, but what would be some examples of litigation that you would do for a a school board? Sure. So um, employment litigation is one of our big ones. So employment litigation comes up in the typical judicial as well as quasi-judicial forms. So, you know, there could be uh, claims filed in in a superior court or federal court relating to employment discrimination, uh, you know, maybe SEPA claims or NJ LAD, you know, you name it, those would be filed there. But then because we also work with, deal with, we're primarily dealing with a lot of the employees being, you know, members of uh, labor unions and public employees, there may be grievances that are filed internally that end up in arbitration. Uh, You also have the commissioner of education who is basically authorized under the school laws of the state to review and determine the outcome of any kind of controversies and disputes that arise under the school laws of the state. So the school laws of the state include not just, you know, the statutes, but also the uh, regulations that are promulgated by the commissioner. So anytime there's an alleged violation of the school laws of the state by an employee, or there's a alleged violation of the school board policies or anything that relates to certain areas of, uh, of employment, um, that can also be filed before the commissioner. So that's what's fun about this area, because you, you get to practice administrative law, you get to, you know, just be a litigator, you know, engage in the discovery and, and all the, you know, other other things that you do, doesn't matter which tribunal, tribunal you're before. But then the other kind of litigation that we also deal with a lot after employment is special ed. And so the special ed litigation, again, they're filed uh, with the Department of Ed uh, in New Jersey, which also get heard before the uh, Office of Administrative Law. We also have a special litigation that will end up in federal court, and our firm has several right now that are in federal court. In addition to that, we'll have litigation relating to, let's say, uh, alleged violations of OPRA or OPMA, you know, the Open Public Records Act or the Open Public Meetings Act, or uh, litigation between schools over payment of tuitions or or or, or variety of uh, disputes. So as you can see, there are different tribunals (laughs) that we end up before in litigation. But in addition to litigation, one of the other things that take up a lot of our time too, uh, when there are different types of investigations that are being conducted by various state and federal agencies, whether it be the Division of Civil Rights, the Office of Civil Rights, um, the sometimes it's PERC, sometimes it's the Department of Ed. So there are lots of moving pieces and we're constantly uh, we're, it's ne- there's never a moment where we're not busy. Uh, so anytime I'm about to say, oh, I might have a lull, I stop myself because I'm going to just jinx myself and into, you know, what we try to do is avoid all that in the first place, right? So our work is to be preventive. And uh, part of being preventive is making sure that our administrators, again, when I mentioned the day-to-day operations and making sure compliance with laws and regulations is taking place, 
uh, but it's not going to stop somebody who really needs to feel feels like they have been wronged or feels the need to be vindicated to go still file something. Whether there is merit in that is, is completely different from them filing something. We try to prevent things from escalating, but we can't, it, it's unfortunately, New Jersey is probably one of the most litigious states that, uh, from what I hear, from what I've seen. And so, you know, we've, we will have plenty of litigation going on. Uh, fortunately, we have a large group of uh, associates that really help us because God help. I, I don't think I could handle <laughs> all of this on my own. So while it seems like I'm wearing a lot of hats and I am, uh, we have a team that that helps me make sure everything is also working. So from my assistant who is like God sent, I don't know what I would do without her, to all the associates that helped, all the partners that consult. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, you're doing a lot. I mean, I do one practice area. So even though you technically do one practice area, which I'm putting in finger quotes, it, it, under that umbrella are so many different things. So your original intent and the, the passion that you had for education law in the first place, which we talked about, is that satisfied with the work that you're doing now? And, and if yes, how so? Right now, uh, right now, I am very content with where where I am uh, professionally, as well as where I am um, in in terms of my career. Uh, because uh, yes, the original intent was not just to be a band aid. Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with band-aids. We do need band-aids <laughs> too, you know? Um, and while I have sort of deviated from the, from also wanting to do more policy work, uh, I did get to do a little bit of that at the department, but what I've noticed is the importance of being, um, a behind the scenes person in the operation of the school district, because if from a school district level, you are assisting uh, the, the school districts and the boards in doing what they are entrusted in doing, which is educating. And in, in, in New Jersey, we have what, 1.4 million students. So, you know, we don't even see a quarter of those students, but we see, we represent a lot of large districts and we see a lot of students. So if we can help them do what they're interested in doing, which is educating our future and, and making sure that, you know, the services that are necessary are provided, the resources are there and helping them improve on what they do. To me, it serves a greater purpose uh, than just sitting, you know, in some high tower and writing, uh, writing policy that impact the trenches without being in the trenches, if that makes sense. And the reason I say that is because I, I see how having switched from place to place and, and being both in government and now back to private practice and actually being in the trenches, I realize how sometimes policy uh, can impact, we don't realize uh, how it will impact the folks who have to implement it and folks who are subject to it. Um, so, you know, it can be frustrating sometimes when you get a directive or guidance or even a change in regulation and you're like, y'all were not thinking about us and how it's gonna, you know. So so it's nice to have that. And then hopefully in the future, I can use that to, uh, whether it be, you know, transition to a place where I can assist in in, in developing more policies and, and, you know, but at least now, it, it, for me, it's almost like 
learning so that I can be better in the future and learning so that if, if in the future there is an opportunity to uh, do something on a, on a larger scale, I'll be better equipped. You've been doing this long enough to have observed where you feel like maybe there are some gaps where the law could be better to benefit the public and, and maybe, well, whoever, the school board, the teachers, their ability to provide a good quality education to the public, or if it's something that need, that would be beneficial to the public, can you share any of those things that you've observed? So uh, I think one of the cha- biggest challenges um, and one of our clients, you know, all our clients that we work with, their biggest uh, hindrances in being able to fully do what the potential is for that district and for those students is funding. School funding has been an ongoing fight for as, you know, even before either of us were born, you know, (laughs) and from all the way from like the original Abbott litigations to through to the present. And so school funding is something that I, you know, I could, I could spend an entire podcast talking about it. So I'm not going to go. We'll have to have you come back on. (laughs) (laughs) School funding that I've, is something from a policy standpoint that I've always felt very, very strongly about. And school funding is something that on a state level, we really need to take a closer look because the funding formula, the current funding formula clearly uh, is not working. And and one of the other pieces of it, it, and it may go hand in hand with school funding, is considering, and I think there has been some talks most recently, as in in the last couple of years, about the potential for regionalization of certain districts. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I don't think enough uh, studies, or not, I shouldn't say studies, but enough work has been done to really look at the impact. But that is something that may go hand in hand with uh, alleviating some of the funding issues, but also looking at, you know, school funding at a a closer level, because every year, some of the uh, communities that have the most need, uh, their budgets keep getting cut, you know, and then there are school districts with that based on what community it is seem to have, you know, very little impact, even when budgets are cut because of, you know, how property taxes are funding, you know, the districts, the size of the district. So all of that really matters. I, when I was in at Rutgers, there were always uh, groups of people who always took issue with the fact that some of the urban school districts get more funding from the state than some of the suburban and wealthier school districts. Well, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that there there are funding gaps on a local level and there are different needs and varied needs depending on what kind of community you come from. So, you know, I think there's that difficulty with people feeling like, oh, why are some people getting quote unquote handouts or getting more than others? Well, there's, there's a reason why some communities have a greater need and even then, budgets are being slashed. Um, so I do think that uh, the funding is one area that, that you know, mon- mon- money is supposed to solve the, the, that problem, but where do we get the money from and how it's reallocated? All that needs to be looked at. Well, that's, that is definitely an issue that our respective practice areas have in common because there's often not enough money to go around in a divorce either which is the, the challenge is making sure that both people can walk away with enough. So um, I don't know. This is a problem I don't think we're going to solve on today's podcast. We won't. We won't. But if, if somebody wants uh, some input, I'm happy to 
give them my, you know, rookie perspective. <laughs> Maybe Mark Zuckerberg will donate more money. I know he gave a lot of money to Newark, but, um, or I was just reading this morning that Mackenzie Scott, formerly Bezos, who is the richest woman in the world, just donated something like, it was a crazy amount of money, $50 million to different uh, schools that are low on funding. Um, so maybe she'll listen to this and she will consider giving. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a part of it definitely is the not just the funds themselves, but the allocation of funds also where the need is and, and how to utilize it is, is something that we really need to look at as well. I like to end each interview with about five questions that are tended to be quick. Okay. What would you be doing if you weren't a lawyer? Probably working uh, at a nonprofit that worked with youth. If you won $100 million in the lottery and you didn't have to work anymore or worry about money, what would you be doing? What would you choose to do with your time? Uh, probably uh, create uh, actually a community, actually a couple of different things. One, I want... Uh, my own yoga studio slash uh, natural food uh, slash community space for community events uh, uh, in a nice little warehouse or big warehouse, I should say. And two, uh, I would love to start a community organization that helps students or help fill the gaps in areas where parents aren't able to meet you know, provide students something as simple as, you know, school supplies and, and, and let's say kids go to school where their uniforms are required, uniforms, things like that. So some sort of a foundation that work with youth and work with families. So that would be something I would love to do. That sounds like such a great idea. I feel like you could do that anyway. I know, but you pressed for time already as it is, right? So funny you say that my husband and I have been talking about uh, that a lot. And it's a matter of finding time from the 16 to 20 hour days that we have <laughs> that we work, you know, some, some, most days we are, we're like working 16 hours. Yes. <laughs> well, again, Mackenzie Scott, if you're listening, <laughs> here's another opportunity to give back. If you were writing life's instruction manual, what would rule number one be? You know what, um, this is going to be very cliche, um, probably for, you know, when people hear it, but um, treat others and yourself with respect. Well, it's rule number one. So it's meant to be basic, right? But that's really profound too. Yeah, because it's a lot harder to be, you know, mean. <laughs> I was going to use a different word, but yeah. <laughs> I had to censor myself. It's a lot harder to be mean or, or disrespectful. It's just, it's so much more natural and easier to be, just respect yourself and respect others. So, yeah. Well, you know what, if you're a positive person like you are, but there are a lot of people that are really profoundly unhappy and that saying misery loves company is true. That, yeah, that's true. Listen, it doesn't mean that people, you don't have moments that you are enraged or upset about something and it'll happen and you may react in a way that you are, you either later regret or you wouldn't have reacted if you had a little bit more time to think about it. But like as a standard base, like just, you know, treating, no, remembering to constantly, you know, respect others is, is really important. 
I think that's important too. And I think sometimes we can forget, especially living in this Northeast area where we are, where everyone's always in such a hurry and we're sort of notoriously mean here. <laughs> you know, if you ask someone in the Midwest who's been here, they'll tell you that. But I think we can forget sometimes when we're in a hurry and we have tunnel vision, we're focused on something that we have to get done. I know I'm guilty of this. I'm trying to be, trying to be nicer. So thank you for the reminder. No, no, same here. I'm not, listen, I, I forget too. That's why that would be my first rule. <laughs> yes. Yes. What person do you most admire and why? I feel like I, I, I have to come up with, you know, like when you first hear that, you're like, oh, you have to come up with a cool answer. Uh, but honestly, like when I, when I think about someone I most admire, I don't know if I go through life necessarily like having one person I admire, I, I try to learn from folks and, and I appreciate what other folks bring to the table. Uh, but uh, one person that really stands out in, in more recently in my life um, and definitely is a role model and I truly ad admire his grind day in and day out and, and he's been doing this longer than I have and I don't know how on earth he does it is actually one of my managing partner, uh, Lester Taylor. He truly is an admirable and, uh, and a model individual um, within the profession. And so I would say, yeah. Lester Taylor. <laughs> I have to make sure that he listens to this so he knows that. Yeah. Oh, don't tell him that though. Cause then, <laughs> then, gonna, then he's going to start feeling himself. I'm, I'm <laughs> but yeah. Well, he should listen to this. He should be listening to it. All right. Final question. What would you tell your 20 year old self? 20, that would have been like in the middle of college. Right. Um, you know, something you mentioned really struck me um, was about, you know, college is the one time you get to really learn and spend that time learning. My 20-year-old self, I would say that to my 20-year-old self because I didn't come from the financial means or background that people might think, uh, you know, because I'm in a different place in life now. And so, you know, I, I had three jobs during college, you know, like side jobs. And then during, you know, in the, um, and even during the summer, I didn't get to like travel or, or intern at cool places. I, you know, everything I did was primarily, uh, you know, trying to make as much money as I can to deal with living expenses and personal experience expenses and, you know, even book expenses for college, et cetera. But I think one thing I lost sight of was the opportunity to take really interesting classes and, and really focus on the academics. And, and, and I wish I did that more uh, and trying to find ways where I could, you know, learn more while I was in college. So yeah, I would say that. Well, I think you're in your calling. And you have a very impressive background and I can't wait to see what else you're going to do. Yeah, I can't either. <laughs> see what's next. Yeah. yeah, you don't even know yet. I don't even know yet. Well, thank you so much for sharing your background and your history. I really enjoyed it. I hope that you enjoyed it too. Absolutely. This was so much fun. And uh, so, you know, coming in, I was very anxious and nervous. Is that just my personality? Because I like to be prepared and I like to know what I'm getting into. And while I knew that, you know, this was just going to be a conversation, uh, I just want to say, you know, talking to you has just been so is easy. It has a lot to do with you and just being able to just chat like girlfriends, you know, over, over a cup of, you know, coffee. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> literally. <laughs> Virtually. Thank you so much for the compliments. I appreciate it. And um, 
I think everyone's going to enjoy your interview. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.